Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. On our last episode, we examined the first part of Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski's opening statement to the trial's jury. She began by relating to the jurors the key concepts underlying the state's case, assumptions, driveway decisions, and malice. After introducing the jurors to the deceased Mr. Arbery, Dunikowski explained to the jury how these concepts relate to the actions of the defendants on February 23, 2020. As we left her on the last episode, she was describing defendant Roddy Bryan's actions that were captured by a home security camera. Defendant Bryan sees Mr. Arbery running away from the white pickup truck, and he makes an assumption, because he has absolutely no idea what's been going on, and he joins the McMichaels in chasing down Mr. Arbery. He just joins in. Oh, white pickup truck chasing a young man, and he just joins in. You're witnessing his driveway decision join the McMichaels in chasing down Mr. Arbery. On today's episode, we will examine the second half of Prosecutor Dunikowski's opening. And then, after she concludes, we will bring in our consulting producer, Paul Butler, for his take. That's all coming up after the break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So what happened next, ladies and gentlemen? What happened next was this. The McMichaels chase Mr. Arbery all the way down Burford, and they cut him off. So ladies and gentlemen, this started out with Travis McMichael going, where are you running from? Where are you coming? And Mr. Arbery ignored them. Mr. Arbery didn't want to have anything to do with them. You can tell that because he ran off. He took off running, you just saw it, and headed down Burford. Using a map, Prosecutor Dunikowski guides the jury through the series of events that led to Mr. Arbery's death. They decide to cut him off. How do they cut him off? With their pickup truck. This is evidence of false imprisonment and aggravated assault with the pickup truck. And it's at this point in time that Greg McMichael gets out of the pickup truck. He gets out because he's sitting in that kid's seat and he gets into the back of the pickup truck. So now he's riding in the back of the pickup truck. What Mr. Arbery does at that point is he turns away from the McMichaels and he runs back down Burford towards Mr. Roddy Bryan. And what's Mr. Roddy Bryan do? He pulled out to try and hit him and ran him into the ditch. False imprisonment on Burford, aggravated assault with a motor vehicle by both parties on Burford to cut off Mr. Arbery Ladies and gentlemen, at this point in time, Mr. Arbery is under attack by all three of these men. He's under attack. Mr. Bryan tries to hit Mr. Arbery one, two, three, four different times with his pickup truck. 
The McMichaels at this point in time, they decide they're going to take off. They're going to go ahead up around Zellwood Drive and come back down because they're going to try and cut them off. Because Mr. Bryant's now chasing after Mr. Arbery back towards Satilla Drive. He gets so close to Mr. Arbery that Mr. Arbery actually has a palm print on Mr. Bryant's car and white t-shirt fibers that are consistent on that car. Mr. Bryant said, I tried to corner him. And then he tried to reach for my door. Mr. Bryant pulls off. In the meantime, while Mr. Arbery's running up Holmes Drive with Mr. Bryant behind him, the McMichaels have come around and are coming down. The statements of Defendant Bryant. So I just kind of sat there for a minute and didn't really know what to do, and then he was trucking. I overshot the road and forced him, Mr. Arbery, to go down into the ditch right there. Aggravated assault with the motor vehicle. Now, he's saying he made it the scene. One time when I cornered him up over here, referring to Burford, he was trying to get in my truck. He tried to get in my door. Mr. Bryan got so close to Mr. Arbery while he was trying to hit him that Mr. Arbery touched the panel and had t-shirt fibers up against it. But from Mr. Bryan's point of view, oh, the guy I'm trying to hit with my car is trying to get in my door. Mr. Bryan at Glen County PD. I mean, I can't say for sure that he wasn't on the door. I didn't give him a chance to get to the door. But if I, after I angled him off the side of the road, you know, and I kind of went on past him, because I don't think I hit him, wish I would have, might have took him out and not got him shot. But you know, I probably got past him a little and he came up on me and I could see him in my mirror. He was coming for the door. I seen his hands right behind the door. Ladies and gentlemen, what's important about this statement? After I angled him off the side of the road, I kind of went on past him. I didn't give him a chance to get to the door. But remember, this is all after he's used his 5,000 pound lethal weapon to angle him off the side of the road. Mr. Bryan again, yeah, towards the entrance, towards the entrance, but I, I confronted him again, angled at him again. Right before we got to the road he's lying on, right at that house that's on the left-hand side. Again. Here we go. I was fixing. I put it in reverse and was going to back up at him. And that's when he made his move to go down the road it happened on. Mr. Bryan is indicted as a party to the crime because Mr. Bryan kept Mr. Arbery from running down Satilla Drive and out of Satilla Shores. He redirected him with his vehicle. He falsely imprisoned him and forced him to run up Holmes Drive right into who was coming? The McMichael. And that brings us to the video. Before we go and look at the video, so how do you know Mr. Ahmad Arbery was under attack by strangers with intent to kill him? Because Greg McMichael told the police this, stop or I'll blow your fucking head off. That's what he said to Mr. Arbery, because he wanted to make sure Mr. Arbery knew Greg McMichael was not playing. Prosecutor Dunikowski then begins to play for the jury the now infamous video recorded by Mr. Bryan of the moments leading up to Mr. Arbery's death. But what you just saw was Travis McMichael raising up his shotgun. That Remington 12 gauge. For absolutely no reason because where's Mr. Arbery? Look how far Mr. Arbery is. Mr. Arbery's under attack. He's being driven forward by Mr. Bryan in his pickup truck. He's running away from this pickup truck. It's already tried to hit him four times toward McMichaels. 
Travis McMichael is out of the car with his shotgun. How do you know this was an attack on Mr. Arbery? Because Greg McMichael said it perfectly. Mr. Arbery was trapped like a rat. That's what he told the police. Trapped like a rat. That's Mr. Arbery coming around the truck. That's the shotgun blast. Greg McMichael, at 1.14 p.m., is making that 911 call. Remember, Mr. Albenze called at 1.08. This is 1.14. Greg McMichael has now made the 911 call. This is after Mr. Arbery has been chased, Mr. Arbery has been yelled at, Mr. Arbery's life has been threatened, all of this. What does he say? His emergency is. This is the emergency, ladies and gentlemen. I'm out here in Satilla Shores and there's a black male running down the street. That's the emergency. Ladies and gentlemen, here's some still shots so that you can see. There's Travis McMichael pointing the gun at Mr. Arbery. See how far away he is? As Mr. Arbery tries to go this way, go that way. Travis McMichael is blocking the street. His truck's in one lane, he's in the other lane. And ladies and gentlemen, this is really important. Right here is Travis McMichael's head. You see the shadow underneath? The reason the shadow is important is because it shows this long thing, the Remington 12-gauge shotgun, and it shows Mr. Arbery right here. Travis McMichael did not stay on the driver's side of the pickup truck. He stepped around that open door and moved toward Mr. Arbery. He's got his shotgun, and he's moving toward him to intercept him. He's right here in front of the car, right? And Mr. Arbery comes around, and he shoots him. Shoots him like that. First shotgun blast in front of that car. Dunikowski is telling the jurors that she believes the video evidence will show that Travis McMichael was at all times before his first shot the aggressor against Mr. Arbery. And here's the truly, truly tragic part of this whole entire thing. Officer Minshew, who was dispatched due to Mr. Albenze's 911 call, was in Satilla Shores and heard the shots. This is what Captain Michael says. He runs to the right side of my truck. I stand on the left side of my truck. I'm waiting, get by, right? As, pa as in passenger side? Passenger side, yes, sir. Running towards the passenger side. Joseph Michael is telling the cops, oh, I was just waiting for the guy to go by. He either came back to the left side or came to the right, and I'm backing up. I'm telling him to quit. Stop coming at me. Stop coming at me. I see where it's going quick. I got the shotgun in my hand. He comes up. Is it pointed at him at that point? Or, yeah, it's pointed at him. He admits he never stopped pointing the shotgun at Mr. Arbor. But here's the problem. Look at this statement. He either came back to the left side or came to the right, and I'm backing up. I'm telling him to quit, to stop coming at me, stop coming at me. Travis McMichael's the one who went to the front of the truck. Mr. Arby comes around the corner, shotgun immediately happens. And what does Travis McMichael say? He comes up to that driveway, squares up with me. I put, you know, I shoot. Squares up with me. Squares up with me. Medical examiner is going to come in here, and he's going to talk about his opinion as to the order of shots. The very first shot is to the torso. And Travis McMichael acknowledges that. Yeah, I shot him, shot him right in the chest. Here's the thing, he didn't hit him in here. Nah, he was holding the gun low. When he shot him, it went right here. And when it went right here into him, it actually came out here. 
Prosecutor Dunikowski indicates that forensics will show that Ahmaud Arbery was not squared up with Travis McMichael. He actually angled away from Travis McMichael when he was shot, and the blast went through the right side of his upper abdominal area. So I want you to think about this. His torso's turned. Here's the other thing the medical examiner's going to tell you. He was also shot in the wrist at the same time. Ladies and gentlemen, this was lethal. This killed him. He just didn't fall down and die right then and there. He went ahead and struggled, as you see in the video, with Travis McMichael over that shotgun. There was a second shot. The medical examiner doesn't think that hit anything. And then when they come back in view, they're struggling over the shotgun. The next blast is right here. Dunikowski indicates the area of Mr. Arbery's chest near his left shoulder. Major, major artery here. His arm falls like this. It's useless. And he stumbles away. Because blood has accumulated from this shot into his stomach cavity. You see, a bunch of ribs got broken. And all this blood is flowing into his stomach cavity at this point in time. At the end of the interview with Travis McMichael, he asks him this. Do you remember if he grabbed the shotgun at all? Because Travis is all over the place. I want to say he did, but I honestly can't remember. Ladies and gentlemen, there's absolutely no evidence that Travis McMichael went, I shot him because he grabbed my shotgun. That's not what Travis McMichael says at all. This isn't about grabbing the shotgun. I want to say he did, but I honestly can't remember. I mean, we were, me and him, we were face to face the entire time. Also of note, Mr. Arbery had nothing on him. No backpack, no bag, no cell phone, no ID, no wallet, no keys, no gun, no weapon. Mr. Arbery couldn't have even called for help if he wanted to, because he had no cell phone on him. Prosecutor Dunikowski then moves on to the anticipated defense that the defendants were trying to make a lawful citizen's arrest. There's absolutely no evidence in this case that anyone was making an arrest. Not one single defendant said, Mr. Arbery had a weapon. Not one single defendant said, Mr. Arbery made any verbal threats or gestures. Mr. Arbery said nothing during the five minutes he ran from the defendants. No one, not one single defendant said, I saw him commit the crime of blah, blah, blah today. Mr. Bryan was on his front porch. Travis McMichael was sitting inside his living room. Greg McMichael was in his driveway. What's your emergency? There's a black male running down the street. No one said, I was making a citizen's arrest today. Not one single person used those words. But here's what Greg McMichael did say. And this is really important because once again, Greg McMichael's talking about February 23rd, 2020. Is he picking up anything, going through anything? You know, not that I recall. I don't think the guy has actually stolen anything out of there. Or if he did, it was, it was early on in the process. No immediate knowledge of any crime in the past or on that day. Did this guy break into a house today? Did he commit a burglary today? What did he do today that you have immediate knowledge of? That's just it. I don't know, says Greg McMichael. And look at what he does. He says, well, you know, that's what I told, what's your name out there? I said, listen, you might want to go knock on some doors because, you know, I'm sure he did something. Now that we killed him, figure out what crime it was that he was committing. But you don't hear he's criminally attempting to burglarize this person's house, and I personally saw it by any of these defendants. That's not what you hear from them. The only time Greg McMichael actually uses the word arrest, and he does use the word, he uses it one time, 
But anyway, in my mind, there's a good possibility this guy's armed. That was my thought process. And my intention was to stop this guy that so he could be arrested or be identified at the very least. The evidence is, is Greg McMichael needs to be able to explain to the police why he has a gun and why his son has a shotgun. So this is it. I thought he was, uh, I thought he was armed. I mean, I really want you to think about this. The evidence is, is that Greg McMichael assumed the worst. This unknown stranger, this black man who's running down the street, has a gun on The defendants assumed the worst about Mr. Ahmad Arbery and made their driveway decisions. They didn't simply follow Mr. Arbery in their truck. Greg McMichael and Travis McMichael sought to confront Mr. Arbery and took their guns with them to do it. All three of the defendants cut him off with their trucks, or tried to, on Burford. They then used their pickup trucks as lethal weapons. All three trapped him like a rat between their two pickup trucks on Holmes. Mr. Bryan coming up from behind, Mr. Arbery running towards Travis McMichael, who's out of the car with the shotgun. The evidence that the state expects to show at trials that Greg McMichael yelled at Ahmad Arbery, stop, or I'll blow your fucking head off. The evidence the state expects to show at trials this was an attack on Mr. Arbery for five minutes, and the only thing Mr. Arbery did was to run away. They assumed that he must have committed some crime that day. Stop, we want to talk to you, is not an arrest. Ahmad runs away, they cut him off, try to hit him with the pickup trucks, and the shotgun comes out. Why? Because he wouldn't stop, so they could identify him, so that the police could later investigate what it was that he must have done that day. Ladies and gentlemen, these three defendants committed four felonies against Mr. Arbery. And it all started when Greg McBeckle saw him running down the street. They committed these four felonies in violation of his personal liberty before he finally tried to run around their truck, as you saw in the evidence, and get away from these strangers, complete strangers, who had already told him that they would kill him and that they killed him. At the end of the presentation of the state's evidence, ladies and gentlemen, the state is going to come back and the state is going to ask you to find them guilty on every single charge in this indictment. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Joining us to discuss the conclusion of Prosecutor Dunikowski's opening is Georgetown Law Professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice, Paul Butler. Paul, what did you see as Prosecutor Dunikowski's strategy with her opening statement? When any lawyer presents an opening statement to the jury, you have two objectives. The first is to tell the story of the evidence that will be presented at trial. And 
It's a brief statement in which you want to focus on the highlights. Uh, no lawyer reveals her entire hand or all of her best evidence because you want the jury to pay attention during the trial. You want there to be some, if not surprises, some important information that the jury learns that makes an impact. And so you give an outline of what your evidence will be. The other part is to introduce yourself as an advocate to the jury. This is one of two chances you get to talk to the jury directly. Everything else during the trial has to go through the witnesses or through the judge. But in an opening statement, as well as a closing statement, lawyers can say I, talking about themselves. They try to ingratiate themselves, not in a, a negative way, but in a way to make the jury think that they're hearing from a person who is trustworthy, who respects their time, who respects their intelligence. And if you can, you want to come across as, as likable, uh, someone uh, who the jury respects. Because if you're the prosecutor, you've got this heavy burden of establishing proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And you're representing the government. You're representing the state with all of the privileges that that entails. But it also might create some skepticism, depending on the jury. During the pretrial hearings, the prosecution indicated that they don't intend to bring racial animus into the case unless the defense opens the door to that mindset on the part of the defendants. What do you make of that? And why do you think that is? I don't make a lot of that because the prosecutors have some compelling evidence of racial animus that they fought to get the judge to include in the trial. That is to give the prosecutors the right to introduce this evidence. Uh, the most graphic and in some ways the most probative is the fact that uh, according to Mr. Bryant, uh, right after Travis McMichael shot Mr. Arbery, he said, fucking inward. You almost never these days get that smoking gun evidence of racism in any trial. Well, those words are pretty explicit and they're extremely racist. And it, it almost verge on prosecutorial malpractice for the jury not to be informed of that statement by Travis McMichael. And so it's important to understand that in an opening statement, there's no requirement that the prosecutor or the defense reveal all of their evidence. In fact, there's not even a requirement that the defense put on an opening statement since it's the government that has the burden of proof. And in this case, in fact, Mr. Bryant's lawyer didn't make an app opening statement. He said he'd wait until after he heard the prosecution's case to decide if he wanted to make an opening. So the fact that the prosecutors didn't tell the jury that they will hear or could hear, might hear evidence about race and racial bias doesn't mean that that evidence won't be presented. What the prosecutor did say in her opening statement several times is that bad 
decisions based on bad assumptions are what drove the defendants to commit murder. And the word assumptions is doing a lot of work for the prosecutor in her opening statement. But I think we can be relatively sure that those bad assumptions that they're attributing to the defendants are about race, in part, about the fact that because Mr. Arbery is African-American, they assume that he was responsible for the crimes that they claim have been committed in the community. Can you also discuss how Prosecutor Dunikowski was trying to frame the defense assertion that the defendants in the case were trying to conduct a citizen's arrest? Part of establishing the trust and confidence of the jury in an opening statement is to let them know that you're not hiding anything from them. And if there are any weaknesses in your case, you prefer that the jurors hear those weaknesses from you rather than from the other side, because that will create the impression that you're not being transparent. And the jurors might wonder, well, what else is this lawyer hiding from us? The defendants have a credible case to make that Georgia law at the time authorized them to arrest Mr. Arbery if they reasonably believed that he was committing a crime. This is a so-called citizen's arrest. And in fact, the law was changed after this case to try to prevent this situation from ever happening again. The Georgia law was an artifact of slavery and the law was passed based on the idea that white people could apprehend runaway enslaved people. And with that kind of baggage, it's interesting that the law was never repealed until very recently. But the defendants will use the fact that the law was repealed to argue that it actually justified their arrest of Mr. Arbery because it was good law at the time. So what the prosecution does in letting the jury know that this is going to be an issue is to try to deflate it when it comes up in the defense opening statement or try to contextualize it in a way that will uh, work for the prosecution. And so obviously the prosecutors don't agree that the law authorize the defendants to arrest Mr. Aubrey. And so they're introducing uh, their interpretation of the law so that the jurors hear it first from them. I just have one more area that I want to talk about, Paul. You mentioned that the judge had made a ruling earlier regarding the admissibility of Roddy Bryan's statement that Travis McMichael said fucking N-word over Ahmaud Arbery's body as he was bleeding out. Can you explain for us how the so-called Bruton rule works regarding one co-defendant's statement about the other co-defendant and how that relates to the right against self-incrimination? 
So Bruton versus United States is a Supreme Court case that was decided in 1968. And that case is about trials like this one, where there is more than one defendant. And what the Supreme Court said is that it violates the rights of an accused person if someone else who doesn't testify has confessed to the crime, and that confession is introduced at the joint trial. Later, in subsequent cases, the Supreme Court limited Bruton and said that it doesn't violate the constitutional rights of an accused person if a confession from a non-testifying co-defendant is used, if there's a limiting instruction that's given to the jury, so the jury is told, you may consider this confession for this purpose, but not for that person. And if the confession is redacted, uh, to eliminate any references to the co-defendants. And so here we have this statement from Mr. Bryant that Travis McMichael uttered these racist words. As we discussed, the prosecutors fought hard for very good reasons to have this introduced as evidence in this trial. And so it's likely that the judge would give the appropriate limiting instruction to allow the prosecutors uh, to use this evidence against the defendants. And the reason why race almost has to come in is that the prosecutors need to establish a, a motive for why these three men would take the life of Mr. Arbery. And the reality is, and one reason this case is getting so much attention, is that from what we know, the defendants were racist. They were biased, they were prejudiced, and they suspected things about Mr. Arbery, and they did things to him that they probably would not have done to a white person. When a prosecutor has evidence like that, you have to be careful about how you present it, especially at this time in our history, but race is volatile. Um, race can be inflammatory and racism is stigmatized. You have to be careful how you use it. But in a case like this, it's difficult to ignore and it provides uh, a good part of the motive that the prosecutors need to establish uh, for malice the malice murder part, but really just to persuade the jury that this wasn't a, a tragic accident. Uh, this tragedy was the result of what the prosecutor in our opening statement called assumptions, but we should be clear, those bad assumptions were thoroughly race-based. Paul Butler, thank you as always for joining us today. Always a pleasure. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Join us on our next episode as we examine the defense opening statement to the jury on behalf of defendant Travis McMichael. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. This episode was written by Art Montrostelli. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. <laughs>